This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this episode, we have Michelle Zelnick. Michelle was born in Canada to parents of Ukrainian and Persian descent who migrated from Egypt to Australia before settling in North America. He began a career in finance and migrated to San Diego shortly thereafter. He opted to pursue a law degree after several years. He held numerous C-suite positions yet ultimately chose to earn a degree in psychology and launched a career as a therapist. He now combines all three professional skill sets he has developed and advises companies where partners are experiencing challenges and are exploring a peaceful means to part ways. Michelle, thank you so much for being on our show. My pleasure. It's really great to have you. Um, we had an amazing conversation a few weeks ago where I learned about your amazing background and it fits so well with our theme here of uh, mining the nonlinear path because you've uh, had a few different um, shifts in your career, uh, but it's brought you to an amazing place where you can really from an, a, a wonderful perch of expertise, provide a lot of guidance to, to people in a, a common situation uh, that they may find themselves in. And so looking forward to diving into this, but I love to start from, from the very beginning. And um, if you could share the story about how your family migrated um, from the Middle East to Canada. Yeah, so uh, my parents were, you know, are, are just have a history of being outsiders, but neither of my parents are originally Egyptian. They're not Egyptian by descent. Uh, they're both, uh, they're first generation. My father's family came from the Ukraine, uh, leaving, uh, leaving Odessa during the pogroms. So my mother left uh, what is now Iran, um, you know, at, at the same time, her family left at the same time. And so, uh, so both my parents were, uh, were sort of foreigners in Egypt growing up. Uh, and then, um, so they sort of have that um, perspective on things. And then when they got together and formed a family, um, it, it was in Egypt. And then, um, you know, it was interesting. They were, they were quite comfortable and successful there. Uh, but 48 came, and which made being uh, of either Jewish and or European uh, not a good thing uh, with, uh, with Nasser and stuff. But my dad took, uh, took the bull by the horns. He was concerned about there being a third world war. So he went to the ends of the earth. He could have, could have gone to Switzerland or Australia <laughs> and he chose Australia, God bless him. And, uh, and way back in 48, Australia, particularly Melbourne was, there was nothing going on. So you go from Cairo, which is the Paris at right. the time, uh, you know, Beirut and Cairo were the sort of Paris of, of the Middle East to right. Melbourne, it was a small town. It was quite an adjustment for both my parents. Uh, and both my brothers, while they were born in Egypt, were raised there. So obviously they were tennis players because that was the big thing back then. Uh, and then, uh, and then uh, but again, my mom didn't speak a, a word of English. Uh, she spoke Arabic and French. And so she had to make her way in, in, uh, in Melbourne while my father as an entrepreneur just started first a shirt, a shirt factory and then he ended up in the car business. And that's what wow. my father, and that's what um, uh, funded our family forever. Dad, dad, dad learned how to buy and sell cars. That was it. Amazing. And that's what we did. Wow. And so, um, and then, uh, in the fifties, uh, mom got kind of tired of, 
you know, Australia. And so, and they wanted to come to the States, but back then they just didn't have a way in. So Canada was the closest thing they can come. Uh, you know, Australia was a dominion country. Uh, so as was India, as were any others. And so, so they moved to Canada. So my parents who had never seen the snow, uh, moved to Montreal, Canada. Uh, my mom was four months pregnant with me with, with two, you know, with a, with an 11 year old and a three year old. Wow. Uh, I mean, sorry, an eight-year-old, and uh, and I was born there. And Amazing. so, um, and again, uh, my brothers were, you know, sort of had Australian accents. It's Canada. It's the French part of Canada. Right. So they're foreigners there where they have funny accents. <laughs> uh, and so my brothers had to sort of adjust to that. Uh, I didn't know differently, and I had two older brothers. I was lucky. I was blessed to have two older brothers and two parents that were done raising kids by the time I came around. So, so, that, so they sort of left me on my own. Uh, and that's kind of, and then my dad as I think I shared with you when we spoke last time, you know, sort of struggled as an entrepreneur. Uh, yeah. He had uh, sort of champagne tastes and, uh, and, and, and his father was extremely successful. And uh, unfortunately, he didn't have his father's gifts in terms of being able to scale. My yeah. dad was very, very bright, but he just, uh, he had, you know, as many entrepreneurs, he had, fatal, he had a fatal flaw, which yeah. was, uh, he, you know, he, he would double down at the wrong times and stuff like that. But he, was, but he taught me a lot about business and life, both my parents did. And, and then, um, and then uh, you know, from there, I sort of developed a set of values uh, relating to hard work, which my dad, you know, my dad taught me men work, uh, education, which is, is uh, you know, which is just, you know, as, as you can tell, I subscribe to uh, in my <laughs> life. Because uh, education and knowledge is freedom and independence. Yes, you know? Well, and you've been a lifelong <laughs> learner. Yeah, and you know, people can take things away from you, but they can't take away what you know and what you learn. And 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 all my education has more or less been practical. Yeah. Uh, and so, and that's sort of how I sort of got the bug uh, to uh, to you know use education as a vehicle. Uh, and if, in in retrospect, well, maybe we talk about that later. In retrospect, the one thing that has uh, been thematic for me is uh, a knowledge that empowers others. That has basically been thematically, if I look back at everything I've learned has been having knowledge, but using that knowledge and, 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 and conveying that knowledge to people so that they, they can make better lives for themselves. And, uh, and not having a facility for uh, high math, I didn't pick medicine. So accounting and finance was about as complicated as I can go. I got into like a D in calculus. And so, uh, so that's how my life got started, but it was always to be engaged and help others. Uh, no, and not altruistic, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, I, I wanted to be successful, right. but that was going to be my vehicle, knowledge and, and making others successful. That's so wonderful. That's, that's kind of how I started. And, and, it, and finance was the low-hanging fruit. Right. Uh, I, you know, I literally, I was in business school. I failed accounting for non-accountants, uh, which no one fails. It's like failing English lit. And, um, and when I took it over again, I said, this is interesting. And I, took, I got an A and I, and I switched my major. Wow, uh, and it changed my life. And I, I, I often ask myself, if I would have gotten a D in accounting, I probably wouldn't have taken it over again because I would have gotten my credits and moved on. I was lucky to fail. Uh, and wow. uh, plus, I met my girlfriend. You know, and the second time I took accounting, I met my girlfriend. So that was kind of cool too. So paid, uh, uh, and that's again, dividends and doubling. And that's kind of another theme in my life, which is when I when I encounter failure, I just uh, I it it actually inspires me. It motivates me to overcome it, uh, uh, you know, take ownership of my experience and then learn from it rather than, uh, I learn more from my failures than my successes. So yeah, that, that's, how, that's how I got it started. That's really phenomenal. Well, you were at a very prestigious university at McGill 
and um, kudos that you had that failure because you met uh, your wife uh, at the same time. Uh, and you, you started out at PwC and then you moved more into a controller role. And then uh, this is also what brought you out to San Diego, but was there right. another cause for the shift or was it just job? <laughs> So again, uh, again, thematically failures, right? Uh, so my my father's business failed uh, in uh, in Canada, and and it was it was actually amazingly inspirational. Dad was in his late fifties, I think he had like thirty thousand uh, bucks, um, and uh, and uh, and uh, I graduated, so I was out of the house. Uh, and he said, uh, and he had his green card, so he just said, I'm just going to move to the states. Which is, when you think about it, just amazing. And he packed everything, put everything into a Buick station wagon that he could fit in the station wagon. And my mom and dad started driving through the United States, starting in New York, where my aunt lived, uh, with the intention of going all the way around, all the way to Seattle. That was his intention. And dad would spend two, three days uh, in every city checking it out. He was an entrepreneur, because you can buy and sell cars anywhere, right? That's true. Uh, and um, and uh, I, got, I still have my mom's letters. She would send me these letters as she was in one town after another. And it was one of those... Um, Things like the like uh, the agony and the ecstasy, and, and when they kept saying, "Are you finished?" My mom would always ask my dad, "Are, are we there yet?" You know, and my dad says, "I'll know when I see it." And uh, and uh, they ended up in San Diego um, near the near the end of their trip. It had been two months, uh, and they were driving down to into La Jolla, have never having heard of La Jolla before. And as as my mother tells the story, uh, she she started driving down, seeing the ocean, down these beautiful cliffs, and and my mom started crying. Wow. And, um, and of course, La Jolla was very exclusive and uh, they didn't know soul. And uh, my dad walked up and down the street, apparently, and looked at my mom and he said, why not? <laughs> and so they called the moving company uh, the next day and they rented a furnished apartment and they built a life here Amazing. and where I now live. And, uh, and how I ended up here was they, you know, they, they made a life here and I'd visit them. And, uh, and one year I got my green card and, and I said, I'm going to make my life here. So I was done with my, you know, when you're a CPA, I was a chartered accountant, but when, you, when you're a CPA, uh, you have to do your two or three years to get your license and then, then you do what you want to do. I never intended to stay in public accounting. So I knew that my next job was probably going to be one I was going to stay with. So rather than get a job in Canada, I just, just packed my bags and, you know, crashed on my parents' couch and, well, and uh, with a net worth of minus twenty thousand dollars, and uh, and I figured I'll find a way. And, and um, law school figured into the picture. Yeah, I did accounting, finance, and accounting, which I wasn't. I mean, I was good at because I'm ambitious and I'm good with numbers, but um, but it wasn't a passion. Yeah. Uh, but again, I help companies and executives be successful. Uh, and uh, what I found when I was doing mergers and acquisitions work uh, as part of my employment. Uh, we were buying companies and, and rolling them up into our larger company. Um, I was I was sitting in meetings with lawyers, and uh, and I would just watch how they spoke and how they thought. And I told myself, I want to be able to do that. And so um, so literally, uh, I was working 50, 60 hours a week uh, as a controller of a division of a you know Fortune 50 company. Uh, but I just, a lab I, I just on a whim, yeah, and a, a national health labs, and on a whim, I just sat for my LSATs, never having prepared for them, scored like in the top 5%, I have no idea how, and I got into University of San Diego, which I couldn't get into today, uh, <laughs> and I went to school four nights a week while I was working 50 hours a week, and, um, 
and 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 then once I got the bug, I just once you start, it's hard to stop. And I had no love for finance and accounting, so I quit my job, finished my law degree, uh, and then became a lawyer. Uh, and uh, and uh, to my disappointment, didn't really enjoy being a lawyer that much. I enjoyed the learning law, right. uh, but I caught a break. Uh, one of my clients uh, was a venture capital-based company that was looking for a CFO and uh, corporate counsel. Right. I filled both seats, so they right. got two in one with me, and, nice. and we ended up by building our company and uh, and uh, selling it. And uh, we had a five-year plan. We hit the plan in two and a half years. Uh, we sold our business, and that gave me the freedom uh, to do what I wanted to do. So right. uh, that's how I ended up uh, that. Well, you ended up with another uh, VC-backed company as CEO and president, uh, Asterion. So it was a healthcare information uh, networking company, and it was a little ahead of its time, and we were undercapitalized. But but for me, the real lesson uh, was it has more to do with Hubble Pie than anything else. So okay. you know, you spend your life you know thinking, well, I'm smart, and I'm smarter than the guys that I work for, and I'm smarter than the guys I work with. Okay, you remember, I was in my 30s and 40s. And, uh, and I told myself, you know, I'm smart, I should run a company, you know, and I managed to talk myself into a CEO position. Uh, and uh, after about three years, I realized I'm really skilled, I'm really talented, but I'm a really crappy leader. And, uh, and I'm not interested and have no passion for the grind and the day to day of running a business. Uh, you know, and that's where I learned uh, the hard way. Uh, that um, my passion and my position is to be a number two. I mean, that is my, it, there's no, there's no humiliation in that. Uh, you know, I think you need to have a certain mindset to want to be in charge and to take the responsibility, including the boredom that comes with it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I need, uh, I need variety and I need certain things. And I don't, I don't really get much pleasure in making decisions and telling people what to do. Um, I really, I mean, I, at the end of the day, and again, this is, you know, this is what my life is about now. Um, I, what excites me and what make, gives my life meaning is to help people find out what it is that really matters to them and help them get there. And, uh, and when you're the CEO, you don't have that luxury. You're just dealing with people. At, and again, you have to do, have develop province. So that was, that was the last three years. Uh, and, uh, but I learned a lot about myself, in, including, um, understanding that um, there's nothing wrong with not being in charge uh, and there's nothing wrong with being more talented and knowledgeable than the people that you either or clients or, or your peers because at the end of the day that's why I'm there I mean I'm, I'm there to make them more successful yeah, yeah. Uh, not to be smarter than them and without that without that experience I really wouldn't have understood it because right. my vanity you know, just wanted me to be to be the smartest guy in the room and in charge. And it, sure. it took me a while to realize that that was actually a flawed thinking. Right, right. Well, that's phenomenal. And then um, you went uh, back to school yet again, uh, continuing theme of lifelong learning uh, to get a master's in, um, in therapy and become a therapist. Um, I'm just curious, Michelle, have you always been the self-aware or did this uh, sort of reflection come as a part of the training, what you've done since going, getting your master's and becoming a therapist? So um, I was at a point in my life, I was in my 40s, my wife and I uh, had achieved a, a level of comfort so that we didn't have to worry about money. Uh, and we were trying to decide what we want to do with the rest of our lives. Uh, 
And I, and I, and I was at a pivot point because I'm not going to retire, play golf. I, I don't like traveling that much. I, I live the life of the mind. And I really wasn't interested in becoming an academic. So there I was, right? Um, and so uh, we sat down with each other over a period of time and said, well, what kind of conversations do we want to have? What do we want to make our lives about? And, uh, and both, and I, both she and I were psychologically minded, although we didn't have any training in psychology. And so we said, well, we can do whatever we want. Uh, so that's when we sort of decided uh, to go back to school and become marriage and family therapists, uh, really with the intention of growing, but more, more importantly, having something to do that didn't have to do with business. I just didn't have any passion for business anymore. And I was consulting for business for businesses and companies, but more from a performance perspective, and which again is not a passion of mine. And so, um, so we literally went to grad school, uh, did our 3000 hours. It's, it's actually easier to be a lawyer than a, than a therapist in California. Uh, and, um, because if they're a lawyer, you just sit, sit for the bar exam. You don't have to go to law school, you know, for, for, for the, for, to be a marriage and family therapist in California, you have to actually go to grad school and then spend 3000 hours accumulating clinical hours. Right. And then you can sit for your boards. So by then you're four, you're four years in, you don't even know if you're going to pass. And they have like a 20% pass rate. I mean, it's insane. Wow. Uh, but I, my wife and I didn't care. We were set. So we were willing to do it and roll the dice, but we both passed first time. But, uh, but, but when I'm looking at a 20 X year old, you know, that's going to have a hundred thousand of debt and who knows if they're even going to pass usually a woman. Uh, so anyway, so we did it. And then uh, and I opened up, a, uh, and I had some really excellent clinical training. I, I, I was lucky enough to get work at the Veterans Administration and also at uh, uh, University of California, San Diego, uh, a Department of Outpatient Psychiatry. So I got, to, I got to work with some very, very challenging cases, and I got a chance to work with some extremely talented people. Uh, I was very lucky in that regard. And then, and then I, I set up a, a couples practice uh, here in La Jolla with the intention of um, you know, working one or two days a week, you know, playing golf. I mean, having balance, right? Sure. Uh, and uh, like with law, I learned I really didn't love being a therapist. It's really funny, <laughs> the, the limitations. I'm sort of used to coming and going as I want. And when you say, when you're going to see you and your wife are fighting and you're coming to my, um, you know, you're coming to my office at 10 o'clock on Tuesdays, I have, that's sacrosanct. You know, but nobody asked me if I wanted to see you at 10 o'clock every week on Tuesdays. And I realized that that, that wasn't a good bargain for me. Uh, so I, I was, had a successful couples practice, uh, but I started consulting on the side uh, just to just to keep my chops uh, with businesses, coaching. I mean, I was like the Swiss Army knife. You, you know, I did everything. I did yeah. group facilitation. I did strategic planning, whatever I could do just to keep things interesting. And just over time, uh, I developed a, a sort of an expertise and a knowledge and a reputation uh, for this particular thing that I'm known for now, which is, uh, you know, misalignment and conflict among and between business owners, whether it's professional service firms, family businesses, or simply unrelated business partners, where uh, they're, they, they own a business, generally they're owner operators of, uh, but they uh, no longer get along. And they don't know what to do. They can't quit. Uh, they can't sell. They're kind of stuck with this person. Uh, uh, and so it all becomes about misery and power. And so the very thing that they sought out to do, which is to become financially independent and work with this other person to become prosperous, ends up by being a nightmare. And, uh, and so uh, what's happened over time is that is my world. My world is people that are stuck with business partners they don't want to be in partnership with but they don't know what to do. And I help them get through it 
in a manner, you know, think differently about the situation and have the tools to deal with it. And then from that place, decide whether they should stay together or not. Right. But if they stay together, this is how it works. And if it's not going to work, uh, as, as wisely as possible, separate from each other without destroying the business. Yeah. And because uh, usually the business is material to both of them. Sure. Uh, and so, um, so that's what I do now, you know, again, based on assessing all the things that I've learned over the years and how to apply them in a unique way uh, and meeting and, and solving a problem that hey, I love solving because uh, uh, it's meaningful. Uh, impacts people, which of course thematically is something that matters to me, which is why I'm punctual, and uh, and um, and uh, and uh, helps other people because these people have employees, and uh, and so when I help them, I'm I'm helping their companies and I'm helping their employees' families, and so it's perfect for me, and it's what I do, uh, it's what I do, and what I plan to do till I drop. That's fantastic. Uh, I love how it's really the perfect amalgamation of. Uh, your career and the various areas of expertise you've had because um, when thinking about a corporate divorce you know the legal aspects the financial aspects were kind of the biggest biggest uh, factors there um, I, I'd love to ask you because I know you've seen so many situations um, are there common themes that uh, in your mind you see where partnerships fall apart yeah, I mean, you know, at, at a high level, um, you know, it's experienced by the parties as, uh, as communication and trust issues. Mm -hmm. uh, some, you know, some violation of trust it doesn't have to be stealing. It could be you let me down or, or whatever. Uh, but fundamentally, it gets down to you know, two things. Uh, uh, one thing is internal. One thing is external. Uh, the external is just the perceived imbalance of... Uh, of uh, uh, contribution and compensation. Gotcha. Uh, it may actually not be imbalanced, but there's a perception. I'm working harder than you, you and I make the same. You know, I'm doing all the work and I'm giving you half the profits or whatever. And, and that just grates on, it does two things. It grates on the person that's carrying the heavier load or in their mind. But also the other person's argument is, is you shut me out of the way, you didn't give me a choice. You know what I mean? I mean, everyone's got their reason to be where they're in, right? Uh, so that's, that's the general experience of it all. Um, internally, uh, where people get lost is they've forgotten why they're there. Mm. I mean, in other words, what matters to them, whether it's financial independence, whether it's freedom, you name it. I mean, there's everyone's top 10 are the same, you know, work-life balance. And I mean, everyone's top 10 are the same, but invariably there's one or two things that ultimately matter to a person. And unless they respect and honor that, uh, they, they go round and round and they confuse everyone around them. Yeah. And so often the partners have forgotten why they're there and their partners have no idea why they're there. It just becomes about, it becomes about control and it becomes about money, uh, which is the worst way to resolve anything. And unfortunately, accounts and lawyers, that's all they got, right? Right. A risk and money. That's all you have, uh, which is a really poor way to deal with an intra and inter psychic problem. Uh, and so my job is to get to the core issues right uh, find out what the hell's going on in, between your ears and your heart yeah. uh and then make you first of all respect that communicate that and then have a bargain with somebody based on based on that from their heart and their head uh and the rest kind of takes care of itself if you bring that kind of clarity and you give them the tools which i do i mean i spend a lot of time teaching people how to have these conversations and teaching people how to think about these situations because this happens once or twice in a person's lifetime 
this is yeah. all I do. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, do, do you mentioned about um, sort of not being aware of why they're there. Do you think it's often that they're not able to articulate it or it somehow gets buried in this top 10 list so that we're perceived as being uh, good people, quote unquote, and we just haven't done the self-discovery? Well, uh, I think it's a couple of things. I think, first of all, um, we, we all live, you know, we're all limited by the time-space continuum. And so we live life linearly. We just do. It's just a bias. We have a, we have a linear bias to our experiences in our life. And it's sort of getting back to your theme about nonlinear, right. uh, nonlinear organic, right? Um, and so, uh, so every decision I make today is based on the experience I had yesterday. It's just, it's just how we're wired, right? Um, so, um, so if you continue to make a series of what you think are good decisions, but over time, you know, you lose sight of where you started, which is invariably what happens. Um, you, you don't even know yourself while you're there. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so most of my clients, you know, are often, um, very, very, uh, emotionally impacted when I, when I go through this exercise with them to say, you know, at the end of the day, what really matters to you. And by the time I ask them that question, I know them really well to know whether an answer is real or not. I mean, there's the politically correct answer and there's the real answer. And I will press them when they tell me something that I just know isn't true, or at least is not authentic in terms of they're certainly not making decisions and living their life according to this thing that they say they really value. They say, well, my family is the most important thing. Really? You know, yeah. so, so you do this, you do this, you do this. Really? I mean, and, you're, and your family's more important than I uh, list four things that I know are more important to them. And, and no one likes to look at that part of themselves. That's right. Because we all want it all. Absolutely. And you don't become a business person or an executive taking no for an answer and being reasonable, right? Yeah. So, uh, so there's a fine line between being stubborn and persistent, right? Um, so uh, I think most, I mean, in most cases, my clients don't know. They just accepted their way of thinking. Uh, and they've allowed circumstances to drive their experience. And these are people that would otherwise never do that. Yeah. That's why it's not that hard once they understand this is what's really going on. You know, that's 90% of my work because yeah. the last 10%, they know what to do. I mean, these people know how to make decisions. They just, they just want it both ways like we all do. Yeah. You know, yeah. you go from 65 to 15 in terms of level of maturity, in terms of looking at things. And I, I want you to be 65 again. I don't want you to, I don't want to be, I don't want you reasoning like a 15 year old. I want you right. reasoning like a 65 year old. And once they do that, they know what to do. I mean, it's, it's rare that once I bring that level of awareness and skills and, uh, and perception uh, to my clients that they don't, that this thing doesn't fix, but it would never have self-corrected. I mean, nothing I get involved with self-corrects. Uh, if it, if it ha organically, it's just, it's, you know, I'm usually the last person they call. Right. They've exhausted everybody else. They've exhausted right. their lawyers. They've exhausted their friends. They've exhausted their CPAs. And that's how I get the business, by the way. They call me up, they call them up and say, I know a guy, meaning me. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that's my job, but I only get them when they're motivated. So sure. if they would have called me a year earlier, uh, they probably wouldn't have been able to do the work. So yeah. I, yeah. I get everybody, I show up in people's lives at the right time. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I, I'm wondering uh, if you could share maybe uh, two case studies and obviously respecting confidentiality, but uh, a situation where um, your advice was you guys should part in a situation where they were actually able to mend and continue forward. Well, I hadn't, I hadn't come here anticipating that question. So let me think for a moment. Sure. Um, um, so, um, 
That's a tough question. So let me, let me again, when, when, should, when should be prepared with automatic cases? I just don't usually get asked this question. The issue is, is like at any point in time, I'm dealing with 10 matters and they're all, and they all matter to me. Yeah. And the way my mind works, uh, the way my mind works is uh, I, I empty my cash all the time and move on to the next thing. Sure, no, that so makes I, sense. Well, well I, I don't spend a long time reflecting. <laughs> and unfortunately, I have a negative bias in that uh, while I while nine out of ten clients are happy with me, the only ones I think about are the one in ten that didn't. <laughs> right. It's the funniest thing. I don't even think about. Right. I don't even think about the clients where I got to win. The success um, cases. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so I mean, uh, uh, I, I was working with these. Um, uh, these three partners with a, you know, just it, it, not a, just a, let's just say an engineering type company. Yeah. Uh, they've been together for 30 years and, uh, and there was the peacemaker, the strong personality and the compliance, so that, which is not unusual to have that, you know, the swallower for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, extremely successful, very prominent in their field. Um, and, uh, and all three very well known in the community uh, as being sort of leaders in their field. Uh, but over time, uh, you know, the personalities uh, started taking over to the point where one partner felt really, really um, oppressed. Mm -hmm. And ironically, the, the sort of more aggressive partner felt put upon that he was carrying the load, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and the middle partner just wanted everybody to get along. It was the funniest <laughs> thing. Uh, I got referred in there by their uh, by their CEO coach. One of them one of them was uh, I, won't, I won't I won't say which organization, but it's a good one. Uh, and so I met with them, and it was it was um, awful. They, they couldn't be in the same room at the same time without uh, tossing furniture at each other. Wow. Um, and uh, and again, the other and there were some junior partners in there, and, and they were kind of caught in the middle of all this. Uh, and, but the thing about us is, you know, you spend 30 years building a business. What do you do? Right. You can't quit. Right. And, and, and what is a non-controlling interest in a privately held business where you're an owner operator worth to anybody else? I mean, I mean, so, so, I mean, the, you know, so they're all trapped with each other. Um, and, um, but it was interesting as I, as I walked them through, uh, my process of both again, um, Self, I mean, I start off with the with the uh, with the principles of self-regulation, understanding what happens under emotion. So it's not good or bad, but you have to understand what's going on between your ears, both from a neurobiological and neurochemical point of view. So I help people understand. So because you can't, uh, you have to be able to interrupt when you get angry or 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 you, or you lose it. You have to be able to interrupt it, otherwise I can't trust you, right? If, if at any point in time you're going to lose it with me, how do we build trust between us? So I, so I teach them that. Then I walk them through a process of understanding each other in a more organized way through and build, basically building empathy, mm -hmm. uh, both, both self and other understanding. And there's this model I use, which I really like. It's not mine, but I think it's phenomenal. And that allows them to at least have a sense of humor and be able to look at people's um, uh, predispositions. In other words, if I, if I work slowly or I'm more thoughtful, I'm more analytical, less emotional, it's a predisposition. And so when, if I'm, if I'm analytical and you're emotional, I'm not, you know, a shut, you know, I'm not some crazy shutdown, you know, narcissist. It, it's sure. just how I roll, right? right. And uh, and if I realize that while I'm analytical and you're emotional, you're not some histrionic. That's just how you view the world. And so, so I started to build an understanding of both how each person operates and how the other one operates. That sort of again lowers the temperature and creates an opportunity for empathy. Then I start getting into the priority issues because at the end of the day. 
you know, what I want, what you want are, are, you know, you know, well, first of all, what I want competes with it, with each other, right? I want everything. So that, so internally I'm, I'm in competition uh, and there's this battle going on that I even know is happening. And then you and I have different priorities and that's in competition. And here we are, you know, building things, right? And trying to make money doing it and not piss each other off in the process. So I walked them through that process and that was illuminating. And then once they, it was amazing to see their faces. There were, there were two sets of issues. One set of issues, their priorities were different. Yeah, and I mean, and not not atypical. One's an artist, one's a business guy, right? So, uh, so, the, so the other one thinks he doesn't get it, and this one thinks right. he doesn't get it. <laughs> fighting, right? uh, and um, and the other one was um, by then they were, they had humanized one another because they they had objectified one another, right. uh, and they'd already told themselves stories about they're a victim and the other person's a villain, and you know, and everyone around them was sort of caught in that maelstrom. Um, when they realized how each of them was hurt. I mean, they're really, and these are men, these are men's men, you know, and, and they were, they had hurt each other I mean, in a really, really uh, powerful way. And once you sort of realize how each of them had been hurt, both themselves and, and it hurt one another, it just changed everything, yeah. you know, and, um, and it was funny at one, at one point, and this, this will, I'll always, it was one of the most amazing and moving moments. I, I don't know why, I guess I can think about why I thought about that one. It's been a few, it's been a few years since I worked with these guys. I know why, because I just got a call from one of the partners. Uh, okay. um, it was, uh, you know, thanking me. And, um, and um, when one partner realized, and they were sitting at this table, this conference table, and they were always at opposite ends of the table. That was always the case. And the third partner was always, the, the, you know, the, the peacemaker was always the other end. It was, a, it was a spin out of a, it was such a cliche. Um, the uh, the one that was had been shut down or whatever, um, no, the the one that was that had been shut down and had been sort of subordinating, was really just talking through his heart about how much pain he was in. The other partner got up, walked around the table, and gave the other partner a hug. Wow! Uh, and then the middle partner started crying. Amazing. Uh, and and I was sitting there going, and I, and I would have bet my Tesla. That was never going to happen. I mean, it, it was it was awful. Uh, but I hung in there with them, right? Um, wow. And they worked out a different. They worked out an arrangement that allowed, and they ended up actually three or four years later uh, transitioning, where one partner transitioned out, okay. but not from anger, and um, yeah. uh, but from a place of love, That's you know. Right. And uh, and they helped each other financially through it, and and the business is still thriving with with new partners, and the exiting partner had a you know ended up. Um, you know, on a, uh, you know, in, in, in a consulting capacity and continues to do business with the business. So, you know, that's, uh, that was a very moving one for me just because, you know, my um, perspective on all of this is because people ask me what are our odds, you know, and I, I can't handicap these things. Uh, sometimes I, I used to, when I was doing couples therapy, you know, you get these two, you know, sort of, lower middle class people with that much education, you know, that you put, you know, Jerry Springer types that you put metal detectors where they came into your office. And they'd be fine. You give them two, three interventions and they'd be fine. You know, and then you get the two college professors that come in and say, we just have a communication problem. And you and you spend five minutes with them at the front end and you go, I look at them and go, you don't have a communication problem at all. You hate each other and, and you communicate it in every way, verbally, non-verbally, in every transaction. You actually communicate how much you hate each other. You're very good. Uh, so, um, you just don't know, um, like I'm one of the most cynical people you'll meet and I'm also one of the least fatalistic people you meet because I've just seen things change when people are ready, you know, and, uh, and it's, and the key for me is to keep it going during the, 
you know, during the rough patches of our work where ordinarily when things blow up, you just go back to your offices yeah. uh, and I just yeah. keep them going. Right. And then they get to that place where they realize, that, again, they take control of their own experience, which is number one. I mean, uh, all my clients are operating from a place of vulnerability. Sure. And when you're afraid of somebody else, don't trust somebody and you're vulnerable and you feel vulnerable, your defenses go right up. Yeah. And so you, so you and I can't work together. If you're, if I, if I make, if I do the slightest thing wrong, you're going to overreact. Right. Uh, but you don't resolve that by talking. It takes action. It takes commitment. It takes a way of thinking that's different, that kind of stuff too. So, um, so, I mean, you know, Pretty well, all the ones I work with are sort of, you know, I, I make everyone cry. Uh, and um, <laughs> it's a brilliant and, skill. Uh, well done, because I think at the end of the day, it's, it's not about money. I tell people it's not about the money, it's about the money. You know, it's uh, money is symbolic. Yeah. Most people don't even understand money, uh, but it means something. To, and, it, and money means different things to different people. Yeah. And uh, so when you when you start looking at uh, when you start talking about money, you re you really do need to understand what the money means uh, before you start settling, you know trying to resolve issues about money. Yeah, uh, uh, often they're not talking about the same thing. You you understand you're you're an investor and you and, and, oh, yeah. and you know you you understand wealth and you understand how money is a funny thing and, yes. and you better understand what it means to the person before Absolutely. you start resolving money issues. Absolutely. Well, um, Michelle, what advice would you have to two partners who are contemplating a venture? Um, what advice would you give them? What, what, what kinds of questions should they be asking? What should they, should they be thinking about? And maybe you've just said it, like, what is their relationship respectively with money? So, um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a planful person, so I, I don't, I'm, I'm probably the least spontaneous person you're ever going to meet. Uh, <laughs> not quite OCD, but um, so I, I start everything with the end in mind and I, and I consider all the outcomes, which is, you know, success and failure. Right. Uh, and you better. And so for me, uh, one, you have to have, you have to have two things. You have to have, um, a method to calibrate as things change. Okay. Uh, so you have to have a level, a, a commitment to flexibility which causes a problem for the lawyers because the lawyers want to clarify everything. And so it's a dilemma. If you make it too rigid uh, because you really, a deal's a deal, then when things get out of balance, there's no natural mechanism short of breaking the deal or renegotiating the deal. If you make it too vague, well, now that's subject to, to, to abuse, right? So, so, so if you, you know, but the reality of it is, is those, those are the two circumstances that you face, right? <clears throat> and so you have to make a judgment call. I'm a big believer in, uh, flexibility because uh, no document uh, resolves trust issues right. you know uh, and so so actually the vaguer it is the better it is in as much as giving you flexibility to change things uh, and so that's number one and then number two much like in marriage where at least second marriages probably uh, you have a prenup right um, you, you you contemplate what breakup is most people just do a buy sell right which invariably again has its own flaws if it's a yeah. formula uh it can get out of whack which i had to deal with one time where it's like a, you know, x time sales where you know it doesn't have nothing to do with profitability sometimes it's about pure valuation well valuation what's the what you know again what's the business worth how you yeah and, and then valuation is based on assumptions about forecast and so so even when people say we're just going to get fair market value well good luck you know, right. I've gotten involved in many matters where the guys would spend, they literally go to war over the assumptions about what the valuation calculation was, right? 
Right. Um, so, but you need to have an exit strategy in terms of things not working out. Uh, and, and you have to codify uh, how problems get resolved uh, in a timely way. In other words, you, you have to, in effect, codify accountability. And for me, accountability is clear expectations, way to measure them, am I doing them or not doing them, uh, feedback, right, timely feedback, and then, uh, and then basically action, right? Because if, if I give you feedback and nothing happens, well, you know, it all breaks down. The absence of any of those four, uh, you have no accountability, whether it's in your per personal life or whether it's in your business life. So again, uh, both in culturally and codifying accountability. Um, and, and then, you know, obviously, the, 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 you know, there's just a there's just a natural course of things that just because you and I are aligned day one, it's more likely than not that over time we will become misaligned. Right. And and again, a mechanism uh, culturally uh, to sit down with each other every year, every two years, every three years, is it still working for you? Um, mm. If you don't do that, you end up somewhere you don't want to be. Yeah. No one does any of those things. Uh, people true. just go buy sell agreement. They they go with the intention. They start and they start selling. They start making, and then before they know it, they're five or ten years older, and they just hate life. You know. So um, uh, so when people you know, and, they, and from time to time, because of my reputation, people will call me up and say, "Hey, we're we're thinking of starting a business. We sit down with us." And I I don't I don't spend any time on corporate formation. I'm not an active member of the bar. Uh, I spend most of my time uh, getting them to understand. What is this? What is it they need to be thinking about, and how do they need to be thinking about it, right? Uh, and and then codifying that culturally and in the documents. Uh, lawyers love me because I I prime the clients uh, to be reasonable. Nice. Uh, and uh, so lawyers love me. I don't take work away from lawyers. I take work away from litigators. That's true. But but I don't take any work from corporate <laughs> lawyers. Uh, and uh, but um, my that's where my experience comes into play. So I don't know if that answers your question, but no, it does. I just wish people would make more on the front end. I just wish yeah. they would. It would. Uh, they they focus on making money and being successful without realizing. You know, I always say, you know, dogs chase cars, but you ever ask yourself what happens if the dog catches the car? Right. You know, and, and and most of my clients are the dogs that caught the car and they don't know what to do. Right. So um, yeah. so I I like to tell them, okay, when you catch the car, you know, uh, this is what it looks like. Right? Nice. Nice. Uh, that's really thoughtful. That's great. Um, you mentioned that you're often the last call after clients have spent a great deal of resources on lawyers and accountants. When would you prefer clients reach out to you? Well, um, probably, well, I think, you know, ideally, it, 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 it's unfortunately a bit of a paradox uh, because all my clients, um, are reluctant to surrender control, right? And in order for me to be successful, they have to surrender control of me. True. Now, I have a job which is I have to be credible from an integrity. I have to be, have to be competent and, and have integrity, right? Which is hard to you know, which is hard to establish. You know, again, from a place of vulnerability. Um, so again, if a client calls me too soon, they probably won't you know comply. They they won't do what they need to do. Uh, so my best clients, you know, call me before they've exhausted every op every option, and they have resources left to be able to make pivots, right? Because uh, invariably, um, once things get resolved, there's a business problem that's been caused by this partnership issue uh, that's impacted them economically. Yeah. Um, so um, so so I guess ideally, while you still have a million bucks in the bank, 
you know, uh, this is the time to call me, uh, not when you're down to your last 50,000, you know. Um, but uh, again, if they call me too soon, they're just not going to be uh, motivated. Yeah. And, uh, and, and they won't make the hard decisions because they right. still think they can negotiate. Yeah. Uh, negotiate or, or use personality to get to where they want to go. It, it's, it's, I deal with uh, very nice people uh, that bring out the worst in one another. And that's just what I deal with. Uh, they're nice people, but they bring out the worst in each other. And my job is to get them through that. And they're only going to do it when they let me do my job. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes complete sense. Um, Michelle, you talked about um, uh, your orientation around time and timeliness. And uh, you referenced it briefly uh, in this recording, wondering if you could share about that, because I think it speaks volumes of you as a person. Well, I think it's it's twofold. If you talk about my punctu my my, my uh, commitment to punctuality, yeah. um, it, it has it has two elements to it. Um, the first element is uh, is I have attentional issues, so, so I have ADHD, uh, and so uh, and I and so one of the ways I manage my um, my my ADHD is or my attentional issues is to prepare, um, and so. Uh, and again, I'm not spontaneous. I don't pivot quickly. So I have to think everything through. So by way of example, when I give a presentation, I'll be there an hour early dealing with all the AV stuff and everything else. I just don't show up and give a talk, even though I can give, even if it's a talk I've given a million times, yeah. because I just need to be grounded in what it is I do. Uh, so, uh, so preparation is important for me from an energy perspective and from an attentional perspective. In other words, um, my being present uh, it, you know, it is my gift, right? It's my offering. Right. Um, and secondly, uh, as I, as I mentioned to you when we spoke earlier, uh, I think it's a sign of respect, uh, that I respect your time that you don't wait for me. And, and I'm not unintentionally conveying a message to you that my time is more important than yours. Right. Um, uh, I can't tell you the number of times, um, there's always a partner or an executive that's notoriously late all the time. Yeah. Uh, and their message is, I want to get, a, and what's interesting is the message that everybody else in the room gets is you don't care about us, yeah. right? And nine times out of 10, it's because the first two things happen. Either something happened as they walked out the door that everybody would agree was more, more important than their speeding. But since that person had a reputation of being late all the time, you know, you know it, the default was that person was selfish. Right. Or they were saying, I'm doing 50 things for us, right? not for me, for us. And, and, uh, and I want to clear all my stuff. So when I'm in a room with you, I'm fully concentrating on you. Now it helps if you don't pull your phone out and start checking your email every two minutes, that would help. Um, <laughs> but the trouble is, is it's risky. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, uh, and again, if there's four people in the room and one person's late, so I, that, that makes an impression on me. And so one of the things I try to teach my, the, the late, the late, you know, partner, um, is, uh, is the price they pay, uh, to their reputation and brand when with the best of intentions, they are not on time or early. Yeah. Now, um, I'm, I'm from San Diego. I think you're in LA. That's right. Uh, I do a lot of business in LA and I'm always the first person in the meeting, by the way, I meet people. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the rule of thumb is the person that travels the furthest is usually the one that's on time or early. Right. Uh, but I always get a kick out of when I go to meetings in LA, when people are aghast, uh, that there's traffic, you know, I'm late because there's traffic. I'm sitting there going, it's LA. I mean, I mean, I mean, how could you not account for traffic? Right. You know, 
and, and you look at their calendars and they have all these meetings back to back. And I'm sitting there going, it's LA. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's not like, going, oh, I was shocked. There's a lot of traffic this time. It's 11 o'clock. Of course yeah. there's traffic. Yeah. But it, I think what happens is, is uh, people, um, time is interesting. Uh, money comes and goes, right? You can make money, lose money, make money, lose money. The one thing that doesn't come and go is time. Right. When, when an hour is gone, it's gone forever, right? Uh, and so people have different relationships to valuing time, right? Some people are not, like, I'm a slow thinker and I'm a slow processor and I'm very thoughtful. So I'm willing to put in time, mm. extra time to do something and think it through, right? But what I don't realize is there's people from a personality perspective that they value time and resources yeah. and they want to, they want to get stuff done, not because they're um, superficial, they just value time, Yeah. right? Mm. And so again, one of the things that we need to understand when we, when we interact with anybody is how do, they, how do they view time? Not just money, but how do they view time? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, you and I can conflict over the fact that I'm taking forever to make a decision when you've already wanted to do five other things. Right. And so you view me as an obstacle, right? And I view you as rushing me to not being able to do good work, right? right? And then we, right. we clash over that, right? right? Yeah. So um, again, um, I, what I try to do is get people to understand what's in their head and heart. I try to get people to understand how they value money. I try to get people to understand how they value time. Yes. Right. Uh, and then because without that clear understanding of how we, how we all relate to those three things, you're, you're operating like children. Yeah, no. It's so amazing that you say that because uh, by personal experience, I've had numerous partners, business partners throughout my career. Um, but the two that I've figured out is that you really need to understand how your partner appreciates, how they perceive money and time. And it's not that you necessarily have to align you just have to understand how they perceive it. So if they, if they're, you know that their internal triage is they're going to value something over an interaction over a meeting that we've scheduled, you know it, you accept it, you move on. Or if they're going to make a certain financial decision that may not be aligned with yours, but you have to understand it beforehand, then you have a basis to move on. So um, right. it's really great that uh, there's, I feel like I, it's validation, that, Michelle, thank you, that I'm on somewhat the right track. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing that comes up over and over again among partners, and you're never going to get an agreement on this, is people have different tolerances for risk. Yes. And because uh, no one's reckless. I mean, no one gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to be reckless and just destroy our lives just because I feel like it. I mean, no one does that. That's right. Uh, but some people are risk intolerant and some people are risk tolerant. So how do you, how do you negotiate something yeah. when that's not clear and on the table? Well, because right? I, mean, I don't, if, I, if I'm risk tolerant, I don't think I'm taking a risk when I do. I mean, I can take a risk by not acting. Right, right. right? But, uh, also, as you said, it's linear. Right, so it may not be rational in every case, and the right. understanding that is is important. Like they might be accepting of risk in one setting, but something seemingly less risky they may be averse to because they've had some recency bias experience that is making them uh, shy away from that. So no, absolutely. And then there's the trauma of 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 hurt and failure, right, which yes, the brain neurobiologically right. recalls. It's a form of mini PTSD. Or remember we got burned that one time, you know, like you do 50 things and that one time you got burned and the, and the brain just remembers that one time. Right. And for the risk averse person, they just, you know, they basically it's involuntarily recall, you know, that, that failure, not the nine that it worked out. Right. right? And well, the first, the other and, uh, part is going, 
you yeah. shared with us that you're doing a similar thing in terms of your negative. No, you don't remember the success stories well, but if uh, something. But like if that, I'm risk intolerant, right? Uh, it'll have a big. It'll impact us, right? It's one thing for me to have an experience. It's another thing for me to to have that experience stymie you, right? right? Uh, from being able to do things in furtherance of our in furtherance of our endeavor, right? Because again, you're not being reckless. You just are quick. You know, you're quick manifester whatever right uh, that, that's why I just um, I, I'm a map builder I show people the map I don't care what road they take I really don't I'm, I'm, I'm ecumenical when it comes to what people do from a business perspective or a risk perspective but without the map you know everything's a minefield an uncharted minefield uh, which makes it really hard to navigate Michelle the cartographer yeah sort of. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Michelle, this has been such a illuminating, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Appreciate your, your candor, your self-awareness and sharing those insights. Well, uh, one clarification. Uh, the person that I met in college was not my wife. I, she was my first girlfriend in college. Ah, and Barbara, okay. would be, Barbara would not like it if I didn't make that correction. Barbara <laughs> and I have been 25 years and she's my best friend. Uh, and I met her uh, when um, I was a better version of myself. So she got the, she ended up by marrying the best version of me, not the early version. So uh, <laughs> my version three or version four, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but that's the one thing I wanted to clarify for the record. Uh, I'm glad but, you did. I'm sorry about that. I, I jumped uh, the gun on that one. Apologies. No, that's all right. I just, I didn't want to, inter see, I didn't want to interrupt your flow. You're kind of on a roll. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's like the animal house story when John Belushi says, did we, did we quit when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? You know, <laughs> so, you know, so he's on a roll, you know, so, so leave him alone. He's on a roll. Um, so, uh, no, I, I really appreciate the opportunity um, to, you know, share my life uh, and my why, uh, because I spend most of my time on the how and what of life. And and, and as I think, uh, you know, we were talking because you and I were introduced by a mutual colleague, uh, and as we were describing one another's lives and the journeys that we've each had, uh, I think we were both fascinated uh, with one another's uh, stories, you know, and, uh, and, I, and I often, you know, take for granted both my offering and my gift uh, and forget sometimes how I got, you know, how I develop these skills and perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, particularly as, as you were bringing to my attention when we spoke before, uh, before this meeting uh, about how my family of origin uh, experiences you know, influenced a lot of my values, uh, which I, which are, which are part of me, but sure. you know, they were a result of the adversity that I faced growing up and yeah. the culture that parents brought as immigrants, right? Yeah. So um, while I, I would consider myself acculturated, uh, I'm, you know, as bad as things are in the United States, I'm, I'm never leaving this country. I love America. Right. Uh, there's things about the United States I don't like, but I love the country. Um, you know, I don't really think about, I have an immigrant's mentality and an immigrant set of values around, uh, you know, taking responsibility for my own experience and, and, and from that safe place, uh, being available and helping other people. And uh, you gave me the opportunity to reflect on that and to express it. So I want to thank you for doing that. Well, I appreciate your acknowledging that, Michelle. It's a real treat for us because it's, uh, again, a fascinating story and uh, your candor, willingness to be vulnerable and, and self-reflective is really inspiring. I think it will uh, resonate with so many people listening. So we thank you. Be well. And uh, again, if anybody has a partner that 
they're having difficulties with, I, I'm happy to make myself available. My practice is national. Uh, and um, now, particularly nowadays, uh, with, the, with the everybody converting over to this format and this platform. Um, but um, I, again, um, I love what I do. I love solving this problem. And I love being there for people the way I can be there. So again, I, um, this is what I'm going to do till I drop. So again, thank you. Thank you for giving me the chance to speak with you. Absolutely. No, hopefully I have a feeling there are going to be quite a few inquiries coming in and I even have some referrals as we've been talking. So um, it's, a, it's a great area that you're involved with and wonderful expertise you can bring to bear. So uh, please do uh, take advantage of uh, Michelle's uh, knowledge and abilities. Um, and then I hope many people do reach out. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.